Good evening, everyone. Great to see you tonight. Thank you for coming back. Appreciate your being here this evening. Pastor Brandt was not here to lead us in worship. He is at Pinebrook already, uh, preparing for annual conference. His responsibility this year is live streaming the uh, activities of conference. So he is setting up his cameras and computers and paraphernalia and getting ready for uh, the uh, three days of conference. So yes, the uh, conference will be uh, streamed. If you want to watch it from home, you're able to do so. All right, tonight we are looking at Revelation chapter 12, continuing our study uh, in the book of Revelation, going uh, chapter by chapter. And uh, I begin by saying to you, I think that chapter 12 is about the most difficult passage in the book of Revelation, if not the most difficult, close to the top, right? So uh, chapter 12 uh, is, as I say, a very difficult portion of Scripture. Let's uh, start with Revelation chapter 12, verses 1 to 6, as I read and uh, give you some context. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with a sun, with a moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was cut up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God, in which she is to be nourished for 1260 days. So the, we want to begin by identifying the three main figures that are depicted in these verses. Uh, the first is the dragon. And the dragon is identified for us in the text, so we don't need to mince our words or try to come up with some kind of other interpretation. The scripture tells us who the dragon is. It's found in verse 9. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan. So it's clear in this particular portion of scripture that the dragon is Satan himself. Secondly, the child is identified in the text as the one who will rule all nations with a rod of iron. Revelation chapter 12, verse 5. Well, we find in Revelation chapter 19, verse 13, uh, concerning the one that's coming on the horse, he is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. So we know who the Word of God is. That is Jesus Christ. The beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. 
And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. So we can say with a pretty clear degree of certainty that the child who is identified as the one who will rule with a rod of iron is in fact the Lord Jesus Christ. Thirdly, the offspring is identified in the text as followers of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 17. Then the woman became furious, excuse me, then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring. And then we have this a positive. On those who keep the commandments of God and hold the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. So the offspring are those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. So those are God's people. The woman is not identified in the text. There is no statement as to who she is. So some background here. It's much more difficult to arrive at the identification of the woman with any degree of certainty. One, there is a woman who's identified in Revelation 17 as a city, Revelation 17, 18. And the woman that you saw is that great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. So sometimes a woman can stand for not just an individual and sometimes not even a particular person, but can be personified as a city. Number two, there is a woman who is said to bring forth a male child in the book of Isaiah that is identified as Zion or Jerusalem. Isaiah 66, 7. Before she was in labor, she gave birth. Before her pain came upon her, she delivered a son. Who has heard such a thing? Who has seen such things? Shall a land be born in one day? Shall a nation be brought forth in one moment? For as soon as Zion was in labor, she brought forth her children. So here, in Isaiah chapter 66, at least, we have a woman who's identified as the city of Zion. Three, in the book of Micah, Zion is metaphorically spoken of as a woman in childbirth. Micah 4.10. Rise and groan, O daughter of Zion, like a woman at labor. For now you shall go out from the city and dwell in the open country. You shall go to Babylon. So my point here is that we have numerous texts that refer to a woman as a city. And we have these texts that refer to uh, the city as being Jerusalem or the city of Zion. But as you work through this, this text, you are going to encounter some um, significant issues in identifying the woman. Um, so, number four, it might be possible to understand the woman as Israel and its inhabitants, as illustrated in Jerusalem. But, A, this could include all inhabitants of Jerusalem of all times. B, this could include Mary as well, because it's talking about the descendants of, of Jerusalem. It's talking about the people of Israel. 
And there are issues in this particular passage in which Mary fits very well. But there are other issues in this passage in which Mary doesn't fit at all. So see, in this interpretation, the woman could refer to a number of things collectively. All right? We could have more than one issue going on in this text, at which point now I have an aside. Because <clears throat> you're going to find tonight a very disappointing. So, number two, principles for regarding the interpretation of the specifics of the text. A, many of the specifics of the text cannot be understood with absolute certainty. However, one does not need to understand all the specifics to arrive at a correct understanding of the overall tenor and purpose of a passage. All right? So, while you may not be able to understand all the details, you can understand the main idea. All right? You can, you can ha come away with a, a basic awareness of what this passage is all about and what I should uh, derive from that. So, too, while we may not get all the details, we can understand the gist or the main idea. And I would say to you that that, that is always significant and that we should always be striving for that basic understanding of a text. But of all the details, the diadem, the stars, the tail, and I could go on and on and on, uh, I could stand up here and conjecture all night about all those things, but that's what it would be, absolute pure conjecture. Uh, there is no way that I know of, of deriving at a clear understanding of what all that language means, all right? Now, an aside, B, our knowledge of God and his word is at best limited. I begin by saying to you, it is helpful, I think, to keep in mind that our understanding is in fact limited and that we don't get frustrated by that limitations. So number one, this means that we cannot know everything exhaustively. 1 Corinthians 13, 9 and says, for, for now we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully. As we look at this text, the first thing we have to understand in verse 12 of 1 Corinthians 13 is the imagery of looking into a mirror dimly. Uh, we have to understand in the New Testament era, mirrors were not like what they are today. Mirrors were polished metal, right? And you've looked at yourself, I'm sure, in a chrome bumper at some point or in some other kind of metal, and you've been able to see a reflection. But the reflection that you see is nothing like the reflection that we get from a glass mirror today. Uh, a glass mirror is unfortunately pretty accurate. Uh, as you look into it, you see the flaws, uh, you, you see the uh, issues that are present, all right? So the illustration loses something in our particular period of time, but if you can go back and just think of when you've seen your reflection in something other than a glass mirror, and you've seen its distortions, and uh, you're not able to pick out uh, all the specifics, the illustration uh, proves to be much more 
helpful. Number two, our knowledge of God and his word varies from individual to individual. 2 Peter 3.18, but grow in grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we can increase in our understanding of scriptures, and certainly we should. And we're given ourselves uh, our whole life uh, to try to understand the word of God better and more fully. So we can know it better tomorrow than what we know it today. So again, our understanding uh, varies among us. But uh, I was privileged when I went to seminary uh, that the president of the seminary was Dr. Alan McRae. And Dr. Alan McRae, his area of expertise, if you will, uh, were on uh, the languages, uh, especially Old Testament and ancient languages. And uh, his greatest interest was in prophecy. And uh, he's written the notes and study Bibles on the book of Daniel uh, in a a few of them. But um, I remember Dr. McRae, and you've heard this story, but I'm reminding you of this story, uh, that uh, he attended a prophecy conference that was held at a church that held the prophecy conference annually. And they, at the end, had a question and answer time. And they asked him a question, and he said, I don't know. And he, they asked him another question, and he said, I don't know. Asked him a third question, and he said, I'm sorry, I don't know. To which a woman said, well, the speaker that was here last year answered all those questions. And he said, well, you should have written it down. Uh, and the point of the story is that that wasn't satisfying, that the, the person answered all the questions last year because... The woman knew that he didn't really know. Just, so give me your opinion. What do you think? And it would be the same thing. It would be unauthoritative. It would be pure conjecture. And the next year they have a prophecy conference. They have another speaker. And you tell us what you think. All right? And that's a way that a lot of people handle uh, obscure portions of scripture. They go around and get the opinions of 30 different people. All of which are equally uninformed and uh, unhelpful. All right? We have to admit what we we don't know. When I was in seminary, the particular seminary I went to, tried to drill that home to us all the time. If you don't know, then say you don't know. Don't conjecture about the Word of God. I had one professor that in his class, sometimes, uh, oftentimes, the, the tests were multiple choice. But his grading system was such that um, if you uh, if you didn't get the right answer, obviously it was wrong. If you circled an incorrect answer, that was doubly wrong. Because not only did you not have the right answer, but you gave the wrong answer. And so he would deduct twice as much if you ever answered incorrectly. He wanted you to keep it blank. He wanted you to say, I don't know. He didn't want you to guess. All right? He If you knew it, answer it. If you don't, leave it alone. And that has just come down to me in a a powerful way. What we know, we say. What we don't know, uh, we leave it alone. Doesn't mean we can't know it three weeks from now or a month from now or ten years from now. But if we don't know it now, for now we are silent. Um, But three, however, 
Just because we cannot know anything exhaustively does not mean that we cannot know anything accurately. In other words, there is a lot of God's word that we can know beyond a shadow of doubt. We can stake our lives upon. We can be absolutely certain of. For there'd be many that would teach us that, well, in the Bible, you know, you can interpret that a thousand and one different ways, and your idea over here is fine, and you're over that. And we, that's just, a, it's, a, it's a book that's unknowable. Uh, you, you just never arrive at the truth. You, you, you never really know about what the Bible says. Well, that's equally false. Um, while there are things that we cannot know, there are things that we can know extremely clearly such as the virgin birth. <laughs> uh, the scripture teaches us that very clearly that Christ was born of a virgin. So there are things that are clearly known, and uh, we need to distinguish between the two. C, there are certain portions of scripture that are more difficult to understand than others, 2 Peter three fifteen and 16. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters, when he speaks in them of these matters, there are some things in them that are hard to understand. All right? Obviously, there are certain doctrines that are, that are more difficult. There are certain teachings that have um, much more, um, that well, there's much more difficult to uh, fully ascertain. Other portions, much more simple. D, these difficult portions of Scripture, the unlearned and unstable distort to their own detriment. 2 Peter 3.16, as he does in all his letters, when he speaks in them of these matters, there are some things hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction. So I'd like to unpack that for a moment. There are two different classifications of people here. First, those who are untaught, meaning uh, those that are, that are ignorant. It means they are uninstructed. One must be on guard against self-proclaimed authorities that are not teachable. Um, we need to be taught. We, we need to be open uh, to hear from more mature uh, believers, people who have studied, people who have uh, given of their, their lives and time and energies in understanding the scriptures, and we need to humbly sit at their feet. doesn't mean we accept absolutely everything um, carte blanche, uh, the scripture says, search the scripture to see if these things are so, but we are teachable. I remember that there was uh, one individual that came uh, and uh, wanted to pastor in the Bible Fellowship Church. And uh, as we were interviewing, interviewing him, uh, some red flags started to uh, be raised. And um, I asked him about uh, how he went about sermon preparation. How did he go about studying a text? And uh, he, he talked about praying and, and relying on the Spirit and uh, et cetera. And I said, well, what are your study habits? Uh, tell me uh, what authors you like to read. What, what, what is it that you use as resources? And he said, I don't use any resources. He said, I rely on the Holy Spirit. And he was saying that in a very uh, an egotistical way. He was saying, that's all I need is the Holy Spirit. And I looked at him and I said, brother, are you, are you fully committed to that? He said, yes. And I said, well, then you should never preach. I said, let them rely on the Holy Spirit. Let everyone just uh, look 
to the Spirit of God to, to teach them. Okay, So they're, 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 while we need to rely on the Spirit, don't get me wrong there, but what I'm saying is there, there can be an arrogance in not recognizing that, that the Holy Spirit works through individuals. The Holy Spirit gives gifts. And so um, there is a measure of humility that needs to go on here. And there are those who are unstable. 2 Timothy 3.7, always learning and never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. People that are tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. Number two here is the main point. It is much easier to arrive at false understandings of Scripture in obscure portions of Scripture as opposed to clear portions of Scripture. Hence, we should derive our basic understanding of truth from the clear portions of Scripture. For it says of these individuals in 2 Peter 3.16 that they twist them to their own destruction. They twist them to their own destruction. Uh, you will find, you know, if you, if you get involved in a cult, uh, if you are studying with the Jehovah's Witnesses or, or some other entity, uh, many times what they do is camp out in very obscure portions of Scripture that they twist and manipulate to say what they want to say, and most people can't follow the twisting and the manipulation. It sounds good to them. They're, they're reading Scripture, and so they are misled. The easiest place to mislead somebody is in an obscure portion of Scripture. That's why we need to rely on the clear portions of Scripture uh, to get our doctrinal footing. E, the scriptures are to believe, be believed and obeyed. They are not to be seen as fodder for debate or for Bible trivia. The scriptures are to be believed and obeyed. 2 Timothy 2.14, remind them of these things. Charge them before God, not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a workman who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. The scriptures are not to be seen as fodder for debate. Remind them of these things. Charge them. Be, be for God. Not to quarrel about words, which does no good. Uh, then 2 Timothy 2.16, but avoid irreverent babble. To argue over passages that are obscure is more harmful than helpful. Verse 14, remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words which does no good but only ruins the hearers. All right? So the Bible can be actually used in such a way in which it's harmful or destructive. Um, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness. It leads into division. It leads into strife. It leads into arrogancy. You probably have heard at some point uh, the adage, doctrine divides. Have you ever heard that? But again, that's far from the truth. The Word of God teaches us that doctrine doesn't divide, it unites. The problem is when people focus on doctrines that aren't clear. When people are focusing on doctrines of which the Bible does not give us the information that people want it to have. All right? When that happens, doctrine divides. That, at that point, teaching uh, branches off into segmented ideas, and one person follows this person, another person follows that person. 
because they are looking to that individual as the authority and no longer looking to the Word of God as the authority. What we want to be doing is always looking to the Word of God, always saying, what does the Bible clearly say? And if you can't support it from the Word of God, then you don't listen to the person who is speaking authoritatively, for the authority relies in the Word, not the individual. So application, all on this tangent. Number one, obscure portions of Scripture should always be interpreted in light of the clear portions of Scripture. Number two, we need to hold to doctrines at various levels of certainty. Not that we don't hold the Bible as absolutely certain. All of Scripture is given by the Word of God as proper for doctrine, for proof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. But there are, um, as I say, uh, levels of certainty, such as the virgin birth. That's clear. Okay? Such as salvation by grace through faith. That's clear. All right? Exactly when the Lord is returning, that's not clear. Uh, and uh, so uh, I have beliefs about when the Lord is going to return, but I don't hold them with the same degree of confidence that I hold to the virgin birth. Nor do I require other people to hold with the same degree of confidence. You're welcome to disagree with me about some aspects of the time in which the Lord's returned. You're not welcome to disagree that he's coming back. Okay? That we all hold to. <laughs> That's clear. He's coming back. Okay? When he's coming back and all the surrounding activities of, of his return, well, not with the same degree of certainty. It's unclear. So we need to be able to differentiate in our levels of understanding. Number four, we should hold diligently to the clearly revealed doctrines of Scripture and we should not argue over obscure portions of Scripture. First Timothy 6.3, if anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are of depraved in mind, deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. So, verse 3, 1 Timothy, if anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of the Lord Jesus Christ, the teaching that accords with godliness. So we need to know what those sound words are, and we need to hold everyone accountable that either you believe that or you're a heretic. Uh, either you uh, hold to that or you are wrong. All right? uh, either you profess that or you are a false teacher. So let me just say something about false teaching. There's a difference between a false teacher and somebody who says something that is false. We all can make mistakes. Uh, we can all misspeak. Uh, we can all demonstrate our ignorance from a, a uh, from period of time to another period of time. And somebody can point out, well, have you ever thought about this? No, I didn't. Thank you. And such people are willing to be corrected. Uh, such people are, are willing to be, to be taught. Uh, and uh, so I, you can say something false that doesn't make you a false teacher. But a false teacher is an individual who, when the Word of God is clearly presented, 
and understood rejects what the Word of God says because of a, a bias, because of a lack of faith that an almighty, all-powerful God could do a miracle. And so a false teacher might deny the miracles of Jesus, that he walked on the water, that he uh, turned the water into wine. You see, this, you don't need to debate what the Scripture says about Jesus turning the water into wine. It's clear. That's what it says. Now there are those that teach that he didn't, but they become false teachers, for it's clear that he took, turned the water into wine. Are, are you following me? Am I making any sense here? Okay, I hope. All right. So, moving on. Number six. Even the most obscure portions of Scripture have elements that can be clearly understood. So, here comes the dissatisfying part. I'm going to go now through this and look at what I think that we can clearly understand from this passage. And... um, it's not a lot, but it's valuable. Uh, it's instructive. And uh, I hope it is heartwarming. The first we learn is Satan is a formidable foe. Revelation 12, 3. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads, ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. He, his tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven, and cast them to the earth, okay? I don't know what the seven heads, I don't know what the ten horns, I don't know what the seven diadems or crowns all means. I don't know what is the picture of his tail, and I don't know what the third stars of heaven is referring to. But I do know that all of that says he has incredible power. Here is someone who is demonstrating a tremendous amount of authority and is a pretty difficult adversary. Don't underestimate the power of the dragon. Secondly, Satan desired and we could put also desires to destroy the Christ child. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. So another issue of Revelation chapter 12 that, that makes it difficult is it speaks of a unified uh, ongoing uh, battle, if you will, or, or persecution or an adversarial relationship that exists with, the sat- with, with Satan, the dragon, just opposed with the woman and her child. All right? So what is viewed as this big hole here of the adversary of Satan with a woman and her child, all right, plays out over a long period of time. 
So notice verse 4. Which, when she bore her child, that he might devour it. Remember, the child we know is Jesus. In this particular instance. So, we could look at a number of things. We could look at Herod's persecution. When Herod wanted to see Jesus die. Remember the, the wise men come to Herod and they ask where the Christ child is to be born. He says in Bethlehem of Judea because he asked the, uh, the, he asked the Jewish leaders where the Christ child is to be born. And so he tells them. And uh, so here we, we find there, there's a satanic activity that's involved in that. It's more than just the... Um, individual Herod who has a desire for authority and power and wants to be king and hears of a child that's going to be born that's going to be a king. It's much more than, than just an individual fighting an individual, but Satan is behind that. This is seen in Mary's flight into Egypt, all right, which is kind of alluded to. But I've been referring to an informing theology. We have some people that haven't been here before, and uh, so some of this is new, but uh, I've been inf- referring to informing theology all along, that we, we take and learn from these other stories. So Mary's flight into uh, Egypt and taking Jesus is also depicted in this passage of, of fleeing from this this dragon. But in the passage, the fleeing from the dragon is future, not in the time of Mary. So it's this overarching picture. Uh, number four, thus the vision, uh, three, this is seen in the heavenly vision before us. Thus the vision is a thematic one dating back to Christ's birth and forward to Christ's return. This vision covers that whole period. See, Satan is unsuccessful in destroying the Christ child. She gave birth to a male child who is one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God and to his throne. So Satan was defeated with Herod trying to kill Jesus. And all along in his earthly ministry, there were others that were trying to kill Jesus. And Jesus is ultimately hung upon a cross, but he rises again from the dead, and he ascends, and is at the right hand of God the Father. Uh, So Satan did not destroy. Satan was not able to overcome. As you remember, Satan enters into Judas and uh, is behind Judas's betrayal of Jesus. So again, this, this passage is referring to a whole lengthy period of time. So I go on to say the specifics of this verse are argued, but the plain sense is undeniable. So we could ask about what particular events in Jesus' life are we talking about. We could even discuss what particular period of time are we talking about. Uh, Are we talking about Immediately upon his death, we talk about his ascension. We talk about something still yet future. We don't know, but we do know that it's talking about Satan's desire to destroy 
Jesus and he can't. You with me? All right. D. There's a battle that goes on in heaven between the evil and good angels. Now, war arose in heaven. Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and the angels fought back. So what is this battle that is going on in heaven? Number one, in the book of Job, Satan is seen as having to give a report in heaven with regard to his activities. Now, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking back and up and down in it. So here, uh, Satan is pictured as having access uh, to the throne of God, that uh, he is able to accuse the brethren. Uh, We talked about that last week when we talked about Christ's intercessory prayers on on our behalf. Uh, Satan still has uh, access to heaven. At some date, Satan will be banished from heaven completely prior to his final punishment. And the great dragon was thrown down that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, he was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. That appears to be a future time. That appears to be at the end of the, the great tribulation. And not only is he going to be banned from heaven, but we know, and now I'm jumping forward in the book of Revelation, we know there's a time in which Satan is bound and cast into the uh, abyss, uh, the bottomless pit. But here, Satan is going to be uh, cast out of heaven. The war in heaven is over the souls of people. Revelation 12, 10. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ has come. For the accusers of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before God. Um, That's what he's doing. To To no avail, but that's what he's doing. G, the victory that is accomplished in heaven is complete. The ground of the victory is the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 11, and they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb. The outward manifestation of the victory is the continued proclamation of God's truth. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. The inward reality of the victory is the Redeemer's faithfulness to God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives unto the death. All right? So at this time, they're, they're going to experience persecution. The evil one is going to uh, put people to death, but they are viewed as conquerors, for they do not submit, uh, they uh, do not acquiesce, uh, they do not deny the Lord but they are faithful to him, as Romans 8 says. We are more than conquerors through him that loved us. But that's an important element of understanding this this defeat. H, Satan knows that his days are numbered. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you will dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. I would submit to you because of the 12 
hundred, uh, the, uh, the reference to the specific numbers of days, that we are in the second half of the tribulation. We are at close to the very, very end. And so he knows his time is short. Um, it's rather mind-boggling when you read the scriptures to understand all that, that Satan and the, the uh, demons know. Um, remember, uh, they have been and are in the presence of God. Uh, Satan is a, an archangel. Uh, he knows much. James tells us that the demons do what? Believe and tremble. Remember uh, when uh, Jesus encountered Legion. And uh, Legion asked him the question, why do you torment us before the time? All right, They know there's a time of judgment. They know what the future is going to be. They know what is going to take place. They are not in the dark. What they are is rebellious. All right? What is mind-boggling is the fact that why would they rebel knowing that they're going to be defeated? I don't have an answer for that. Any more than I have the answer to why people refuse to believe the things that are so clearly taught. Why? why? Forgive me, but it is hard for me to understand how people could believe that this earth just came into existence with all of its complexity, with this universe, with people, without believing that there is one that accomplished this with great power and wisdom. That it just didn't happen, and it just didn't happen by luck. What example can we look at with such complexity that just happened, that just occurred of its own initiative? We are without example. Um, Unbelief is not rational. Anyway, uh, Satan knows that his days are numbered. Satan makes a last attempt at destroying God's people. Verse 13, and when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and a half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of the mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. I don't think that's referring to Mary and her flight into Egypt. I believe that is future in the context. However, that attempt is thwarted also. Verse 16, but the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from its mouth. Uh, that doesn't fit with the description of her fly, fleeing into Egypt. Number three, this additional defeat only makes the evil one more angry and desperate. Verse 17, then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring. And we know who that offspring is. Number four, 
went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Now that's the end of chapter 12. So we don't know how it all ends yet. We go to chapter 13. But I would say to you that we are to look at what it is that we can know of a certainty, and that is, number one, Satan is indeed a formidable foe. Number two, that Satan's desire has been from the beginning and is to the end to destroy Christ and his followers. He is a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Satan was unsuccessful in destroying Jesus. Satan is unsuccessful in destroying Jesus. Satan will be unsuccessful in destroying Jesus. We know that of a certainty. There is a struggle, a battle, that is going on at the present time that exists between the spiritual and the spiritual realm of good angels, evil angels, of Gabriel and Michael and the heavenly hosts. We, we know that there is a spiritual reality that is playing itself out in even the events that are taking place on this earth. Um, Ephesians t- teaches us that we, we, str- we battle not against uh, flesh, but of principalities and powers and dominions and darkness. And that's why our spiritual warfare must be of a different kind of value. You, you can't shoot Satan with a bazooka. All right? uh, our, our war is of a different nature. We know of a certainty that that war is going to be concluded. There's going to be a time in which Satan is fully and completely destroyed. We haven't gotten to that full, completely destroyed yet. We're in chapter 12, where he's cast out of heaven and knows his time is short, knows that the end is clear. And so he's fighting with all of his might and trying to take down as many with him as he can. We know that in that battle, he cannot rest away the souls of God's people. We know that they remain faithful and true to him because of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. We know that there is no ability of Satan to snatch us out of the hand of the Father. He accuses us. We saw last week in Romans chapter 8, who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? Who is going to condemn? Shall Christ that died, yea, rather that is risen, who is even at the right hand of the Father, who is going to come and return for us? The answer is no. Um, he can't wrest God's people away from him. We know that the ground of the victory is through the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. That, you know, the, the evil one believed that he was going to gain victory through the crucifixion. He entered into Judas in order for Jesus to be betrayed. And in his ignorance, 
failed to realize that that crucifixion was the ultimate triumph. Triumph over sin and death. And Christ rose again. Ascended to the right hand of the Father and is coming again. And so, we are to have faith and confidence and awareness at the same time. Uh, may we realize that there is much more going on in this world than meets the eye. There really is such a thing as evil. And we see evil raise its head time and time again, of which there is a hatred of justice, of righteousness, of goodness, of morality, of those that identify with the Lord Jesus Christ. There is persecution. There is hardship. There has always been that, and there always will, until Christ returns. For this battle of Satan has been going on since the time of the creation of man. It first appeared in the Garden of Eden. It will continue until Christ returns. But he will be defeated. And Christ will be glorified, exalted, and worshipped for all eternity. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you for your word. Help us, Lord, to have confidence in you and the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, may we rejoice in all that the uh, Lord Jesus has accomplished for us. May we not fear the evil one, and at the same time, may we understand uh, what a formidable foe he is. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you, and you are dismissed.